Welcome to Trap One. I'm Mark. And I'm also Mark. Thank you very much for joining me. Uh, today we're going to be looking at the shiny new edition of the very first ever Doctor Who book, the novelization of the first Dalek story, which we both recently read. Uh, and for you, this is the start of a bit of a 60th anniversary Doctor Who reading journey. Yes, I thought I would set myself a bit of a challenge this year. I was ever so slightly disappointed in my efforts last year when it came to reading. Um, so I found that having a bit of a target or a goal uh, spurs me on a little bit. So the last couple of years, especially with lockdown, the benefit of lockdown is that I read quite a lot. I read about 67 books in 2021. I think I only read about 30 last year in comparison, so I felt very shamed um, and decided that as I have so many books going spare, especially on the theme of Doctor Who, um, and it's the 60th anniversary, I thought I would see if I could read 60 this year. So I'm at the moment, I'm getting through them okay, but we'll see how that goes as time passes. <laughs> Um, and you're doing a mixture, I think, of Target books and sort of Virgin books, things like that? Yeah, a real mixture. I've got some of the um, past Doctor BBC books. Um, I've got some of the Missing Adventures, the Virgin Missing Adventures, um, New Adventures, a real variety. Um, some of the books that were released as part of the 50th anniversary, some of the reprints that were done for that, I've still got sitting and waiting to be read as well. <laughs> so... A, a real wealth of them and I've sort of I've taken a bit of advice from followers on my Instagram and Twitter who steered me in the, in the direction of some books um, some warned me off some which perversely made me want to read them more so I might be tempted to read um, some of the the, uh, the ones that uh, don't come highly recommended <laughs> um, and see how that goes yeah, it's always good to reappraise uh, reappraise things as well because some of them have been out quite a long time now. It doesn't feel that long ago, but they, uh, like you say, the uh, the fiftieth anniversary now was ten years ago. Time goes very fast, and I think it's when I was looking at the book collection, I realised that some of them, especially some of the BBC ones, I got them as a on a holiday when I was about twelve or thirteen, and we were travelling back up from Norfolk as a family, and we stopped off at this service station that had a discount book outlet um, and I had about 30 quid worth of holiday money left over and the books were about £2.50 a piece so I just bought as many as I could get with my 30 quid um, and I haven't read all that many and that I've had them for <laughs> nearly 20 years well more than 20 years now some of them <laughs> so so I feel a bit embarrassed this year's the, the year that I'm going to make up for the fact that some of these books have been sitting on my shelves for a very, very long time. Fantastic. I look forward to following your progress and, and your thoughts on those. Thank you. Yeah. What's really nice timing is on the day that we're recording to talk about the first ever novelization is that we've had an announcement from BBC Books today of five new or newish target books. So we're getting Kablam by Pete McTeague, Planet of the Ude by Keith Temple, the Zygon Invasion by Peter Harness, Water of Mars by Phil Ford, and Warrior's Gate and Other Stories by Stephen Gallagher. That was a really timely announcement, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, per perfect timing for us. They're out in July this year. Um, the Warrior's Gate and Other Stories one sounds interesting. This is an expanded version of the 
original uh, novelization, uh, along with two short stories that, that, that he's written. I've got to admit, I didn't know until I was talking to some of my fellow Trap One hosts today that uh, John Lydecker, who wrote uh, The Original Warriors Gate, is Stephen Gallagher under a pseudonym. I thought that this was going to be a situation like with the recent um, David Fisher books, where somebody else had novelized them, and then the original scriptwriter was uh, was getting a crack at it as well. So uh, yeah, I didn't I didn't know that piece of information that uh, Stephen Gallagher and John Lydecker are one in the same. Yeah, I can't quite remember what the reasoning was that he chose the, to use his pen name for the novels at the time. Um, but it's it's in, I, I like the fact that he Stephen Gallagher has been willing to revisit it because is it not it, it's based on the original manuscript, isn't it? And that. Uh, broadened version of what was originally published in 81 or 82 when it came out and um, so I'm quite excited because it's one of my favorite stories so it'll be interesting to see how it develops because I didn't listen to the audio version which it's based on that came out relatively so that's quite good um look I think that's the one I'm looking forward to the most that's where my the classic series is where my heart lies really yeah uh, well I'm, I'm indebted to my uh, co-host UK Jason, um, he was saying that the reason that Stephen Gallagher used a pen name for the original Warriors Gate novelization is because he was having some success as a horror writer at the time, and his agent advised him not to have his name associated with a sort of a TV tie-in novel. So oh. that was why that was why he used a pen name in that instance. But um, yeah, I suppose now he's uh, yeah he's quite happy to uh, to uh, to have his name on it again. Yeah, I think it's a bit, a bit more of cachet to have your name associated with Doctor Who these days. When I think these <laughs> maybe if you're an up and coming and making a name for yourself, maybe you wouldn't want to have that. So it's a yeah, canny move on the part of his agent back then, but at least he's embracing it now. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then Kablam, that'll be be very interesting. I think to see whether Pete McTeague takes on board some of the some of the criticism or some of the uh, sort of connotations of that story. Um, that's uh, you know since it was broadcast, it's always interesting to see where the original authors how they expand on things and where they take it. Um, a bit like some of the ones last year where Rona Monroe did the Eaters of Light and completely um, just ignored a lot of the ongoing continuity and focused on her mm. story solely. Whereas some other authors would maybe be try to have it within the series continuity or where it fits. It's a perfect standalone. So it'd be intriguing to see. With this being, we're only it'll only be the second Jodie novelization as well. So quite intriguing to see how it will be built upon and adapted. Yeah, that's true, isn't it? We've only had the Witchfinders up to now, haven't we? So yeah, that was another good one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, um, looking forward to that one. Um, Planet of the Ude by Keith Temple from from series four. So this is one of two uh, tenth Doctor novelizations. We've also got the Waters of Mars, which. Phil Ford co-wrote, didn't he, with Russell T. Davis? Yes. Um, so he's, uh, he's he's taken that one. And similarly, the Zygon Invasion was was co-written Peter Harness and Stephen Moffat. I think Steve, uh, so Stephen, uh, sorry, Peter Harness has written the novelization. And this one is delayed from last year. It was announced with last year's target novelizations but, and then was pushed back to this year. So. Yeah, that's the one that's probably intriguing me the most because it's a story that... I didn't take to when it was on TV, so I wonder if it'll make me reappraise it and see it in a different light, depending on whether he does a very faithful adaptation or perhaps takes it in a different direction. Be intrigued to find out. 
I, I really like that story. So, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm hoping it's uh, it's the same, but but more, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, July can't come soon enough. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. So, so they'll be out in July, and we'll be reviewing them uh, on Trap One um, around that time, as soon, as soon as we read them as well. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to that. Great. Greyhound leader to Trap One. Emergency alert to all radar stations. Doctor Who and the Daleks by David Whittaker got this very handsome new edition. Uh, it's hardback, sort of large format, lovely dust jacket, but still with the uh, the Target logo intact on the spine. It's a it's a beaut. <laughs> it's it's it is it is stunning, isn't it? And in common with most Doctor Who books, it's it's a uh, different size and format to, <laughs> to, to to most of the others as well. So. Not quite sure where where to slot it in. Yeah, I know. Um, but the main selling point is it's, uh, it's sort of la- lavishly illustrated. Some, some really lovely illustrations. Um, the thals in particular, some of them are very rugged, I must say. Um, yeah, they're much burlier, aren't they? Very burly. <laughs> and they've all got a very, very long, luscious, Timothy-like shampooed hair. <laughs> So it's been it's been really quite nice actually sort of revisiting this book because I don't I think the last time I read the Daleks probably would have been about ten years ago because I think that was when they did the hardback reprint so it was really interesting going back to it because certain things I'd forgotten um, and and it was just sort of and when you said oh do you want to talk about it I suddenly thought I really have to think about it now don't I. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think twenty sixteen we got the hardback reprints of the of the original three novelizations, um, which I got, and I don't think I don't think I got around to reading the Daleks that time, mm-hmm. but they were re released in uh, was it twenty eleven or so? Um, I think when they they sort of started re releasing some of the old ones in the format that the the new novel, like new series novelizations, are mm-hmm. yeah. Because I think this is where the Neil Gaiman introduction comes from, isn't it? The 2011 reprint, ah, yeah. which is also included in this one. Because uh, I thought it was new, and then um, I know it says Neil Gaiman 2011, uh, and I sort of yeah checked, and it is in it's it's in those ones that, um, that that were released a few years ago as well. That makes sense, yeah. Because I remember having the vaguest recollection. I'm thinking. Why does Neil Gaiman has he done another introduction for it? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, how did they persuade him? He's obviously surely he's too busy to do introductions for books over and over and over. Yeah. <laughs> so Robert Hack, who, who's illustrated, he's done Doctor Who work for the Titan comics and and also is it icw i think that that did the doctor who comics before titan so so he's got a bit of experience with with doctor who and i just i absolutely love the the style of the illustrations in here uh, and something that's pointed out in the the doctor who magazine feature from from issue 584 where they they, they talked to robert hack and some of the, the creative team is uh, which I hadn't noticed, but then looking back through it, really appreciate is the way the sort of the color scheme changes throughout the book. So it's the sort of cold blue when it's on when it's on Barnes Common, and it's all sort of foggy and mysterious. And then it's a much sort of warmer color once they move into the TARDIS, and there's there's a sort of roundel pattern on the, on the back of the pages as well. 
it's very subtle, isn't it? It's very, but it sort of it carries you along through the book very nicely. Yeah. So even when they go back into the TARDIS, it, it sort of reverts to that. It really helps, to, I think, to set the tone and the mood. And then even the pages that don't have any illustrations, they've still got sort of the appearance of a texture uh, and a color as well. So it sort of keeps you in that mood. And I really, I really like that. It was. It made it, it's interesting when you read different editions of books, going back to them, suddenly having illustrations and you know they purposefully tried to choose bits that hadn't been illustrated in previous editions, and I think this is the the third time it's been illustrated by a different artist. So yeah. it's been quite challenging to try and pick moments that hadn't already been done, um, because obviously I'm sure most of them are the pivotal moments. So it, um, it's still pretty good that you get moments like the. Um, monster attack in the Lake of Mutations, um, which is that's a part of the story that I had completely forgotten until I revisited this. Um, it was it was great. I mean, the monsters look quite brutal with their big mandibles and <laughs> red eye. <Yeah. laughs> I think I think they look terrific. That's one of my favorite favorite illustrations in it, and. Um, it occurred to me further on in the book when when we see the glass Dalek, which obviously isn't in the TV story, but is is an invention for this. That there are some similarities as well. It's you can it suggests a sort of a common ancestor for the different mutations. I think uh-huh. that they both got a sort of domed head and single eye. So that that was a really nice element that, that you, mm. well, you don't get to see a full mutant do in the in the in the TV story. Um, in in the way that you do here, but that was that was a, that was a really cool idea because the glass Dalek as well is is such a nice idea, and then we get a really a couple of really good illustrations of it here. One where it's kind of in all its majesty, and then one where Ian is smashing it up with the uh, with the Dalek claw appendage. Yeah, and I love I love the fact coming to that illustration at the end, and you've got just that little hint of the evil of the Daleks set in the background. I don't think that was that. So, like a nice little sort of Easter egg for anybody that's you know, yeah. that know their sets. I hadn't picked up on that. Yeah, it's that sort of um, kind of scaffolding type structure, isn't it? That yeah. So I, I, I appreciate that. Well, <laughs> this fan anyway. That's great. The other illustration that I I really like is the one of the Doctor, which I think has been sort of quite widely shared when they were publicising the book. Um, from when he sort of appears holding the out of the mist with the TARDIS in the background, holding yeah. the mat. It's so evocative, isn't it? It really sort of captures the mood and seems to give you a bit of an impression of what he's like. There's a slightly, mm-hmm. and there's something about the expression in the picture. It's, it's really, uh, don't know whether you would trust this man exactly. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of slightly sort of challenging, isn't it? And uh, yeah, he's, he's, the Doctor in this is quite uh, in the novelisation. He's quite a menace, actually, isn't he? He's uh, I definitely wouldn't want to get on the wrong side of him in this. I know the first Doctor in the yeah. series is uh, certainly in the early stories quite a difficult character to be around, but in this, he seems even a step further. He's very antagonistic and quite. Uh, standoffish and brutish at times yeah i think i think definitely early on as well he's got and, and i suppose this this sort of speaks of, of david whittaker not knowing 
I suppose, how long the series would last, let alone the novelizations. So the Doctor does have quite an arc, even just within this book, mm-hmm. where by the end, you know, he sort of reflects on um, his dishonesty at, uh, at tricking his fellow travellers into having to go to the city because of the, the fluid link ruse. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he sort of softens towards um, Ian and Barbara and everything like that. So... I suppose as a self-contained story, he, he has a bit of an arc there, as as do Ian and Barbara's relationship, which is mm-hmm. well much more romantic um, than than it was on the screen, and and more more truncated. You know how how close they become as well. So it's okay. yeah, it's it's interesting that as a standalone book, it, it really works. I think wow. um, well, two things I think really it's. Um, it's just a fantastic introduction, like any child picking this up mm. who's into reading sort of like action and adventure and, and, and stuff would would be absolutely gripped by it with, with no previous knowledge of Doctor Who whatsoever. And it's so good. And it's it's really satisfying because Whitaker is clearly somebody who gives a lot of thought to character motivation and tries to give them a rounded sort of, you know, there's there's, there's their basis for all their actions um, like you say, the relationship between Barbara and Ian is really strong in this. Um, there's a greater, you know, Barbara's very uh, antagonistic towards Ian, and then it turns out that that's largely a front for the fact that she's already got feelings for him, and through the, the adventure, she's slowly falling for him, and he doesn't understand why she's so standoffish. Um, yeah. like <laughs> the bit in the the epilogue where. Ian's overheard Barbara's conversation with Christus, I think it is, mm. uh, who says something along something about um, the women. Uh, the man always asks the woman if she's willing in within yes. the pile. <laughs> and then Ian in the TARDIS at the end just says, "Oh well," because the man always asks the woman if she's willing. <laughs> so gently teasing and leaving it open ended. Um, I quite like that. I like the fact that it sort of it, it seems to come round, and every, everybody's softened. They all come together very much in a difficult situation. They're all very, uh, they're all they're almost you can almost sense that they're skirting around one another and antagonizing one another. And then by the end, they've all softened slightly, and they're prepared to face what might come next. Which is, like you say, it makes it a really good self-contained little story, and it leaves it open for potential for more and. Who knew that how many would follow after that? Yeah. <laughs> I I love with the with the romance subplot how absolutely clueless Ian is. Like he's got his he's he's he, that even um even the doctor and Susan have realized that that Barbara's fallen for him. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I just I don't because it, it, he's um what we haven't mentioned is written from Ian's for um viewpoint in the, written in the first person so it's it's all from his viewpoint and he's like absolutely no idea what's wrong with barbara the doctor and susan are talking about it and he's trying to listen in to what they're saying without making it obvious <laughs> um <laughs> to try and get a clue but even they're savvy enough which the, the classic series doctors are never really that sort of savvy are they about sort of love and relationships and stuff but even the first doctor has got more of a clue about <laughs> about romance than, uh, than than Ian. He just seems like this uh, really hapless uh, sort of bachelor. <laughs> it, yeah, he seems really pig-headed in this, actually. Ian's characterisation is quite different to the, the Ian you might be accustomed to in the TV series. Um, 
he, yeah, very pig-headed. And um, when when he, when Barbara snaps at him at one point, he, he he genuinely he's really aggravated and wants to know why she's being so why is she being so difficult with me? I don't get it at all. He's completely oblivious. He's just he's so wrapped up in the the wider situation that he's not really bothering about nuance or or emotion <laughs> right now. Like, what's she getting angry for? What's her problem? Yeah. <laughs> She's having an emotion. Uh-huh, yes. Now is not the time for an emotion. Thank you very much, yeah. Barbara. <laughs> I suppose, in a way, Barbara is the furthest from the TV characterization. It, she's described as being in her early 20s, which um, I think Barbara on TV is supposed to be older than that. And I think, mm-hmm. I think um, Jacqueline Hill was about 34, I think, when she started playing the part as well. Mm-hmm. And then because she spends quite a bit of the story in a bit of a mood, <laughs> not speaking to Ian, um, that, yeah, not a lot of her character definitely, as you recognise it from the TV story, comes through, I think. Yeah, she's probably the, she's probably the least well represented of the crew. Um, Susan obviously gets quite a bit to do. It, they all seem to get a turn, whereas Barbara is just tagging along the whole time. She doesn't seem to get a pivotal moment because David Whitaker chose to take out the whole subplot with her falling for Ganatus so that yeah. Ian and Barbara relationship could come to the fore in the novel. So she kind of loses one of the main plot threads from the TV serial, um, which is a bit of a loss, but I can understand why Whitaker would want to make these changes because um, then she would just be getting a bit. It wouldn't. It probably wouldn't make quite so much sense if she was angry at Ian one minute and secretly wanting to court him and um, kissing yeah. Gannis at the same time. So mixed messaging. <laughs> and then it wouldn't. I suppose at the end she would want to stay with Gannis as well. It wouldn't make sense because they make more. Or, or Whitaker in the book makes more of the option that Ian and Barbara have to stay behind. Uh-huh. Um, I was going to say on Scarrow, but it isn't actually named as Scarrow, is it, anywhere in the book? Which is uh, which is another thing that surprised me. Mm-hmm. But yeah, on the on the planet, um, if if Barbara was just fully in love with Ganatus, the Doctor's saying, I don't know if I can ever get you home, and wherever we go, it's going to be dangerous. So if you want to stay here, you'll obviously have like a very elevated position in society. You'll be helping them to rebuild. It would be hard to justify why she would why she would leave. Mm-hmm. I think she has to have that re- that relationship with Ian, doesn't she, that, uh, that that they would both leave. Yeah, there's something there's something about Ian that's that you know, she's obviously feels safer with him than mm. than risking staying on this planet and maybe never getting home. You know, it's the, the she's got the real uh probably a bit of a dilemma there. Uh, but that's that's our reading of it more than what Whitaker conveys, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, because I think even well, because the other thing is obviously Ian and Barbara don't already know each other in mm-hmm. this telling, whereas uh, you know they're they're already colleagues, aren't they? In, in an earthly child, and in this one, she's a secretary, but she's not really happy being a secretary, so she's doing a bit of tutor work. So, mm-hmm. um, and uh, Roni pupil is Susan, so I guess she, in terms of that, she doesn't have a lot to go home for. Um, so we don't know anything about her family situation or anything Um, so yeah it would it needs to be Ian I think for the impetus to be to get back in the TARDIS at the end as far as the book's concerned it seems to be so in the start of the book that Ian is very uh, unhappy with the life that he's got 
his lot in life, he's not happy with it. He's pursuing another job. He's hoping to, he was hoping he would get this role that he's applied for and he's just driving back from an interview. So there's sort of the, the, the implication that perhaps the traveling with the doctor might give him a bit more of a thrill and excitement in his life, which he's, which he isn't getting right now. So I find that quite interesting. Yeah. He's, he's having a, a bit of a terrible day isn't he as, as the book starts and then so yeah that the first 30 odd pages longer than i'd remembered from last time i reread it i think is is this alternative meeting for the dr susan ian and barbara i i really really like it but the thing that i'd forgotten i think or in my memory ian had broken down near barnes common mm-hmm. but really this time it doesn't say he's broken down it doesn't it doesn't exactly say why he stops and considers walking home. It seems to be just that he doesn't want to drive home in the fog, I think, is it? Yeah, and he's he's not stopped to check his oil or something as well. I think he's he's maybe just, again, that sort of the, perhaps the impression that he's unhappy with his lifestyle. Maybe he's not in any great rush to get home, to be honest. <laughs> well, it sort of says like, oh, he's, he pulls over and then he says, oh, it's a really long walk to get back and everything. But it doesn't say why he can't just drive that was what i didn't quite get and so the only sort of conclusion i could draw was that um car, cars in the 60s weren't, weren't very good for uh, for driving through fog <laughs> no, no decent fog lights <laughs> yeah <laughs> um and then no sooner as he stopped he becomes embroiled um in in the in the action on on barnes common hmm. it's interesting in the in the doctor who magazine review in issue 586 of this book, Simon Guerrier says that the crash scenario is based on an event from Whitaker's childhood when his mum was hit by a lorry, um, which I hadn't heard before. But Simon Guerrier is writing a biography, I think, which has just been announced fairly recently of David Whitaker, which is coming out later this year. Um, so this is like some some fascinating kind of insights, uh, you know, about his inspiration for things like that in there. And then on the recent season two Blu-ray box set, there's, a, there's the documentary Looking for David, uh, where Toby Haydock is sort of investigating David Whitaker a bit. And he says that, that Whitaker spent a lot of his childhood on Barnes Common because they live near there. So it makes sense if his mum had an accident there. Mm-hmm. And then the other bit from that documentary I thought was interesting was they talk about when he was trying to break into writing, having not really succeeded as an actor. He and his mum had pitched something um, to the BBC about road safety. Mm-hmm. So uh, it makes you think that potentially that was on the back of her having had an accident, uh-huh. like it, it, kind of something close to their hearts. Clearly played on them for quite some time because it's a very, quite a dark description of what goes on. The bit where he says he has to, he has to engineer to move the body that's the, you know, the dead body in the lorry that's overturned so that he can get to it and turn off the lights. And he's worried about the electric spark setting off a fire if there's a leak. And it's, it's very detailed and quite grim. Uh, yeah. I wasn't expecting that, and I'd forgotten just how, how bleak a start to the book it actually is. It's, it's really grisly when he sort of has to climb into the cabin of the lorry and, and move the dead soldier and, and, and that type of thing. I think when I was a kid, I don't. I didn't really have a, a clear idea of what a common was. <laughs> um, I don't. I, I, there aren't. Maybe there aren't commons here, or we don't call them commons. But 
I think as a kid, I used to um, think they were quite dangerous places because um, <laughs> every time it's common in Doctor Who, there's like a horrific road traffic accident. Uh, so in this story, you've got the, the the crash and and the dead soldier, and then in the massacre when Dodo arrives in the TARDIS, she's just witnessed uh, a crash or a, a kid being run over or something as well. Of so I think as a kid, the only time I ever read about about commons were <laughs> really <laughs> horrible things happening. So I was probably quite glad that there weren't anywhere <laughs> anywhere any anywhere near me. Yeah, that you know of. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> been striding across commons all this time and being blissfully unaware of dangers on your doorstep. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there should have been some of those uh, like public safety uh, adverts <laughs> uh, in the seventies for. <laughs> Beware! You're striping onto a common. <laughs> <laughs> just yeah, just walking along and there's lorries crashing and overturning behind me and everything. Just really yeah, really. And you're just a blissful. <laughs> yeah, just got my headphones in. <laughs> Stranger things have happened. So we so we learn a, a little bit here about um, about Ian and Barbara, and, and Barbara's been injured in a car crash. She's looking for someone called Susan, who we learn is is one of her pupils, but they can't find her. But they do come across the doctor who uh, appears out of the fog. And we have a guest reading of, of this part of the book from Dave Rennie. So we'll hear that now. The footsteps I heard were cautious ones. I could almost imagine the owner picking his way carefully, and not just because of the poor visibility either. This sort of walking was deliberately quiet. I felt the girl's fingers touch and then hold my arm. We both pressed ourselves back against the wreckage of the car and waited. I switched the torch off. The dim outline of a man became clearer. He was wearing a cloak, and under his fur hat I could see his silver hair, surprisingly very long on the back of his neck and touching the collar of his cloak. His head was bent down, peering at the ground, and in his hand he held a lighted match. He stopped suddenly, so near to us that I could have taken three steps and stood next to him. I saw him bend down on one knee and pick up something from the pavement. It was my cigarette. All my concentration was directed towards the match he was holding. The strength of its light never altered, and the quality of it was far whiter than any match I'd ever seen before. The other thing that puzzled me was that it didn't seem to be burning any lower. Slowly, he turned his head, and the girl's hand gripped even harder on my arm. He saw me first, and then he looked at the girl beside me. What are you doing here? It was such an extraordinary question in the circumstances that I nearly burst out laughing. He got up and stepped over to us, holding the match higher in his hand. I felt it was up to me to say something. A girl's been hurt. We were looking for her. He nodded slowly. A tragic business. The soldier in the lorry has been killed. You've been hurt too, young lady, by the look of you. You should be in bed. Not until I found Susan, she said quietly, and the old man gave her a sharp almost startled look. I couldn't stop myself any longer. What is that match thing? It never seems to burn down. Just a little invention of mine, he said easily, and turned his attention to my companion. What did you say happened to the girl? She was hurt, I told you. I left her here on the pavement and went to get help. When we came back, she'd gone. Made her own way home, perhaps. That isn't very likely, is it? I said. He waved a hand in the air, a gesture of bewilderment. The young are so thoughtless, 
I saw his eyes glinting with malicious amusement. Perhaps one of our family found her and took her home. Thank you very much today for that lovely reading. Please do check out Dave's new podcast, A Kettle and Some String, uh, which I will put a link to in the show notes. Thank you, Dave. That was great. So does they spend more time in the TARDIS as well? Uh, well, more time than they do in the Daleks, but I think probably more time than they do in An Unearthly Child as well. And I, I really, really like the TARDIS scenes in this book. I like the... Because uh, Ian just passes out, doesn't he? He sort of bangs his head or something as, it, as he comes to the door and then wakes up and, and sort of sees the TARDIS and has it explained to him, although he's, uh, he's, he's a bit disbelieving at first. Mm. But I love the stuff about the shower, the um, the shower room where it says like the uh, where your body's sort of pummeled by loads of water jets and oils and things, yeah. and then the headset that gives him a haircut and the marshmallow like device that gives him a shave and everything. I really like that kind of idea of uh, of what uh, what futuristic technology would be like from the sixties. Oh, definitely. I think it. I, I was kind of envious of the sound of that shower. It sounded amazing. Um, <laughs> does he not say that it makes he, he feels invigorated and willing to? You know, the doctor says it, it, it it'll help you tone your muscles so that you're fighting fit and ready for any action. Um, or it's like, well, that you know, I've been mind a shower like that some mornings. Yeah, yeah, that, that sounds amazing. It just sounds so convenient. <laughs> oh, perfect. Yeah, no, you wouldn't have to exercise. I think it does it all for you. Yeah. <laughs> That is the dream, definitely. <laughs> and then we've got the food machine stuff as well, which, which is in the uh, which is in the TV story, isn't it? Where the sort of Mars bar looking things come out and they taste of uh, bacon and eggs. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, that that'd be quite convenient as well. Actually, I find cooking quite tedious. I would love a machine. <laughs> <laughs> and then the. The, uh, the sort of computers still still look like the the computers they had in the sixties with the big spools of tape, yeah. uh, and that kind of thing. Well. <laughs> Cla- classic look. It's a uh, very uh, obviously in vogue. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's. Uh, I found it. It's quite uh, interesting. I sort of found that it all being from Ian's perspective, with it being in the first person. Um, I'm going off on a slight tangent now, but because of that, there isn't a lot of Dalek action. <laughs> it, it all, it, all the Dalek stuff happens more or less to other people. And as the story progresses, he's often getting told what's happened in his absence or to other people. Oh, the Doctor and Susan have been captured by the Daleks, by the way. Oh, have they now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So it's it's sort of an exciting adventure with the Daleks, to a degree. <laughs> it's more about Ian's adventure. Yeah, they they are missing for for chunks of the book, aren't they? Once once they've uh, left the city to go and and try and encourage the Thals to to fight them. Mm-hmm. It's only yeah, right right at the climax again isn't it that that Ian encounters him like you say because uh, he does the the circuitous route through the tunnels and past the lake of mutations and everything to get into the city so yeah it's only uh, it's only once they find the the master room I think it's called uh, that uh, yeah he gets he gets to face them again I kind of wonder if I'd been a kid reading this would I have been slightly disappointed by the lack of Dalek action because it is told first person and so much of it happens out with? Um, but that's just me speculating. 
Yeah, I don't. When I read it as a kid, I don't remember feeling like that. But I think there's enough incident and and sort of lot of sort of boys' own adventure, isn't there? With the you know, sort of uh, having to uh, swing over the chasm and and all the kind of stuff that that he ends up to. Mm-hmm. And then the Daleks, did you sort of hang over the whole story? Like you feel their presence oh. all the way through it. That even when not there, everything is is about escaping them or. Or attacking them and, and trying to bring them down. Uh, it's quite a good motivator. It keeps it does keep spurring things on, uh, mm. which I, I did like that. Um, I also like the fact that Whitaker, the emphasis changed slightly when it came to trying to make the point about why the Thals should fight back. Um, reading the scene where Ian is trying to get the Thals to box. Um, at first I was reading that going, it doesn't really make sense to me, is he just added this to as filler? Um, but then he, he has that, then there's still the same discussion that you get in the original serial, where you know where they point out there is something you're still willing to fight for. Um, and then you get the scene where they're on their expedition, they're making their way round through the mountains and the Lake of Mutations, and then they're attacked. And Ian comments, you know, he thinks to himself, now they have a reason to fight. Now they're inspired and they recognise what they have to fight for and why they have to save themselves. So all of it works really well to emphasise why the Thals need to overcome their pacifist instincts that they've now got and fight for their lives. Um, whereas I think if it was just you solely had the scene where they go, well, see, you have got something you're willing to fight for, it probably wouldn't feel like a great motivation. You know, what, what's the point? You know, mm. you're told, you know, give it a shot. Um, yeah. <laughs> now got three very clear reasons, you know, it sort of sets it out um, a bit more, it's a bit more vivid actually, and, and a clearer uh, sort of statement why they should go for it, why they should fight back. Yeah, I think... The, because the the Thals characters are a bit more fleshed out, or some of them are more fleshed out than than, than on the screen as well. So yeah, it makes sense that because what's new for the book as well is I think when Aladdin makes his speech and he talks about, well, you know, are we not fighting by by farming and things like that as well? Are we not sort of fighting against the elements and the uh, and and you know still sort of fighting for survival in a way because it's it's quite a tough place to live because of the uh, you know the radiation and and everything like that and they've they've done this big migration haven't they which is which has taken years for them to to reach the Dalek city mm-hmm. um, although another thing I think I'm right in saying that um, the word radiation isn't used in the book either is it it's not I found that really interesting they just keep referring to a sort of a sickness, a sickness in the air, and and in the yeah, air. particles in the air, or something like that. And I wondered if if he thought that kids wouldn't know what radiation was, mm-hmm. or perhaps or whether it's just maybe sort of cold war fear, perhaps not wanting to overemphasize or overegg that for a, for a kids book. Yeah, yeah, because he. Like you say, he's not shy about you know talking about the dead soldier's body and and Ian having to sort of maneuver that round and that that's quite grisly and the mutant stuff's quite grisly. But yeah, maybe the radiation thing is like you say just too much of a real world mm-hmm. fear. Yeah, um, yeah. I didn't know that or whether he just sort of thought I don't know if kids will know what it means or. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it was in the TV show, wasn't it? And there wasn't there was no explanation. It, it seemed like there was an assumption that people would just know what radiation was. 
it's I, I think it's really interesting sort of having recently had the collection box set that looks at David Whitaker and his history and his upbringing and his beliefs and reading this and thinking about the strengths that he brought to Doctor Who and how he created it he his voice is actually so much stronger than I think a lot of people would probably take as read um a lot of the characterization is so strong throughout that first year of Doctor Who and most of the serials that he did um he, he's relied upon he he introduces virtually every companion throughout the 60s um mm. he's some of them out uh he gets a lot of the big pivotal stories so they were still very reliant on him and had a lot of faith in him uh, and he was doing all sorts on this side you know doing these novelizations and going on to do the comic books and film adaptations and all sorts mm. um, he he was he probably a, a he, he rightly deserves to be recognised as one of the architects of Doctor Who, and I don't think he often gets the praise he deserves for for founding the the characterisation and so much of the mythology that we know. Yeah, definitely. I think I think that documentary, Toby Haydock's documentary on that set, really really makes you think about that a lot more. Um, you say a, a script editor, you know, who's having sort of final draft on everything and mm-hmm. making the the characters consistent and and all that sort of stuff. And then, uh, you know, power of the Daleks as well. He's he's helping to mm-hmm. to ensure the series continuation with a new Doctor, which is obviously a really really risky thing for them to do. Uh, so you know, and I think he plays that perfectly as well. Um, mm-hmm. The way that you know he he has Ben as the mistrustful sort of side of the audience, and Polly as the the more trusting mm-hmm. audience uh, viewer sort of thing, who's, who's just you know wants to go with it sort of thing. And then you know by the end of it, Troughton is established as the Doctor, and you know he's he's had a really really good adventure. So yeah, and I'm really looking forward to to Simon Guerrier's book. I think that's going to be going to be fascinating. Yeah, I'm really intrigued to learn more about David Whitaker now because he did seem like such an un, an unknowable figure for so long because he passed away at a point where fandom didn't go out and find people and you know milk every story out of them, every story and anecdote out of them poss- out of them that they could possibly could. Um, so a lot of these figures that were lost in sort of late seventies, mm. early eighties, before fandom really took off and interviewed people, um, we've we've got so little to go on other than anecdotes from other people, um, which sometimes shadow your opinions of of these mm. people. Um, it, was, it was fascinating to have learned more about him through the documentary that was on the, the recent box set. Things that we'd never have guessed, and. To have, Looking really looking forward to the Simon Guerrier book to find out more because I imagine he's uncovered a lot uh, from yeah. life. And and it just and quite a sad story really as well about how how young he died and mm-hmm. uh, you know how, how the work dried up for him and everything as well having having been such an important figure in in founding Doctor Who. So, oh, definitely, I think we were very much denied some great novelizations because he was going he was he was he was doing the enemy of the world when he passed away he'd started that mm-hmm. i think he had been provisionally assigned to do the evil of the daleks straight after mm-hmm. and based on his novelization to the daleks and the crusaders i think we could have had some really really some of the best of the range to look forward to yeah. um so it's a it's a bit of a sad loss that we missed out on some of these stories 
definitely it's yeah we you know we just sort of appreciate his legacy i think that we you know we've um we've thankfully got a lot of those early stories and then and then this book i think is is just yeah fantastic piece of writing i think i think every time i've reread it over the years since i was a kid i'm always struck i think it is one of the best novelizations as a, as a standalone book a, a really good sort of jumping on point i think for, for for new readers or or you know kind of new doctor who fans mm-hmm. and just the the strength of the writing is fantastic. Some of the stuff, uh, it's really, it's really evocative. Um, and there's one bit. I think it's when the uh, Thal is attacked and eaten in the swamp. I'm trying to find now. Find what does it? How does he end the chapter? The Lake of Mutations, and it's all in just one sentence. Uh, Elion was dead, and the lake would reveal the secret of his dying only to its next victim. Yeah, you know, like that's a really you know Terence Dix gets so much praise for some very mm-hmm. you know very succinct and precise sentences and and characterizations of bits and pieces in his novelizations. Whitaker's up there as well. There's some. I mean, I I, I fished out my copy of the Crusaders as well because I remember his introduction to that being really really good. And in two or three sentences, Whitaker, if you'll indulge me, um, he he just manages, he gets the mythos and the mythology of Doctor Who completely, and he's the person that's selling it. This is only the second or third Doctor Who novelization out there. And he's saying, you know, in the prologue it begins, as swiftly and as silently as a shadow, Doctor Who's space and time ship, TARDIS, appeared on a succession of planets, each as different as the pebbles on a beach, stayed a while and then vanished as mysteriously as it had come. And whatever alien world it was that received him and his fellow travellers, and however well or badly they were treated, the Doctor always set things to rights, put down injustice, encouraged dignity, fair treatment and respect. And that's... I think that's I think that's brilliant. A really great summation of Doctor Who at a time when the mythology of the series was still being founded. So I nothing but respect to Whitaker for for really having a, a grasp of the series and really championing it in a lot of ways. Yeah, that's that's yeah, it's beautifully written that, isn't it? So mm-hmm. thanks for thanks for reading that. The 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 Fair treatment line reminds me of the Thirteenth Doctor as well. The sorting out fair play oh. across the universe thing as well it makes you wonder if that was uh, that was a bit of an influence on on Chris Chibnall's writing because there's there's a line in this which struck out to me this time when when Susan is back in the the cell in the Dalek city and she's relaying her adventure to to the rest of them about traveling to the TARDIS alone to, to get the anti radiation drugs. Uh, she exclaims, "My stars!" Which I think is it, Clara says. Is it the Rings of Akatan when when Clara says, "All oh, my stars"? And, yeah. and again, I wonder if that that was an influence on that, or you know, sort of a bit of a callback as well, because it's not a common expression, is it, or an exclamation? I think. Mm-hmm. And it makes me wonder just how many Doctor Who showrunners and writers and scripters have gone back and revisited these books, because I was only watching mm-hmm. uh, the. Terence and Me documentary on the season eight collection box set the other day. And in one of the um, stills that they shared of Terence Dix and Barry Letts, you've got him in the production office and in Terence Dix's hand was the first edition of An Exciting Adventure with the Daleks. 
Ah. And you think perhaps he learned a few things about how to write Doctor Who from David Whittaker. Yeah. Or much of an influence. Especially when he was when he was starting on the novelizations as well. Yeah, it makes mm-hmm. sense for him to, to to go back to the original. Uh-huh. I found that found that quite intriguing and interesting, the fact that uh probably these books were maybe floating around in the production office for years and maybe get picked up every so often by somebody and they go, oh, now that's how you tell a Doctor Who story. That's how you structure it. That's how you work away at these things. Yeah, because is the, is the Glass Dalek in Revelation of the Daleks inspired by this? I don't know if that if that is sort of confirmed in or is it, but it's... I don't know. It's quite an interesting one because I do wonder... Going off on a bit of a tangent again, Eric Sayward, interestingly, in Revelation of the Daleks, as well as having the glass Dalek, he does a he uses a Terry Nation trait of naming the planet after, you know, after something. So Necros being necrosis, mm-hmm. um, so yeah. some dead flesh. Um, there's uh, there's clearly there's probably more than we realise. I think a lot of the script editors and people that worked in the production office probably took a lot more influence from their predecessors than sometimes they would care to admit or perhaps they've simply forgotten where they got their inspiration from yeah because even even the mutant as described in the inside the glass dalek is is more generally humanoid than the more sort of squid-like ones and and isn't isn't far from davros i would say because he's got sort of one arm and things like that Mm-hmm. So yeah, I suppose it's all like cross pollination, isn't it? And uh, yeah, and sort of seeping across different different ideas. Yeah, fascinating. I'd love to sit in the production. I would love to have gone back in time and sat in the production office at some point and hear some of these conversations. See, yeah. hanging around, you know, there's old draft scripts of stories that you know were either heavily rewritten or were never made, and um, that just mm. were sitting around and being used as you know. People were just you putting paperweights on them. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, and I think uh, obviously as you know, we're praising David Whittaker, but Terry Nation wrote the original story, and and as a, as a story, it's, it it is so good, isn't it? As you know, it, and it's, it's you've got the original TV story, you've got this novelization, which is which is quite different, but keeps the same structure, and then a, a movie as well that we had the, the Peter Cushing movie of it, so it's. It's such a sort of the the bare bones of the story are so strong, like arriving, finding the city, the Daleks, all the creepiness of that as well, like the you know the city being apparently deserted, and then the Daleks appearing, and then Susan having felt or seen something in the forest that then you know they turn out to be the good guys, and then uh, having to persuade them to fight. It's it's all just it's just such a I suppose it's just like a sort of straightforward but really compelling story, and you can see how it it survives all these di- different iterations. And yeah, David Wright was obviously just picked that up and ran with it for the book. And, and yeah, it's, it's probably kind of my favourite version of it. I think. Yeah, I think it's it it stands up really well, and I think Terry Nation often gets a lot of flack. You know, people saying that he's a hack writer and he didn't really put that much effort into things. But when you when you see, you know, when you when you look at the structure in the bare bones and the ideas that are going on there, he's never short of inspiration. Um and the Daleks, I it's a story that I revisit quite often. I like the original mm. T 
TV version a lot and find I know for some people they find the pace quite slow but I often get to episode four or five and go oh I don't think you know I can't be that far into it yet and then go no yeah. well, actually, I'm going into episode six now yeah. <laughs> it, it, all the beats are there and it's a really good story and I think the fact that it's been revisited in different ways and uh, sort, of, sort of having the, being able to refer to the novelization and the movie version like you say all the same points are there there's not really any there's none of nation's ideas are lost they're just maybe mm. concentrated and used differently or diluted slightly here and there um so i think uh, credit where it's due uh, he was he was it was, wasn't that bad a writer really no no definitely but it just reminded me one of the interesting things in the book which i think watching the tv story again is when uh, the doctor said, talks about the fluid link and saying, oh, it's out of mercury, so we're going to need to go to the city. I don't get the impression in the TV story that Ian is immediately on to him, that it's, that it's a ruse. Whereas in the book, Ian kind of clocks it straight away and says, all right, we're going to... We're gonna go. We're gonna sort of uh, play this game, are we? Doesn't he? He's more insightful in that way, where, where he isn't from the romance point of view. He is in in terms of uh, yeah. He's kind of got the doctor's number quite early, hasn't he? Yeah, in the book, he's so distrustful of the doctor that he just immediately is assuming the worst. Whereas in the in the TV version, it's not until they get to the city and the doctor goes, yeah. you know, it's, it's been a bit of a ruse on my part. I'm very sorry. And, and then he goes, what? What, you've put us in yeah. this danger for all this? Whereas in the book, he goes, actually, I think I've got your number, but okay, okay I'm going to, okay, we'll, we'll go to this yeah. city because I'm going <laughs> to be wrong. <laughs> and he does have a bit of scientific curiosity and they do think that like there's nothing alive on the planet, don't they? So, so he's more more willing to go along with it. But yeah, that, 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 that was an interesting change. Uh, but I suppose your point of view character, I suppose you do want to be to be a bit more with it as well. It's another thing about the book that I find quite interesting when we go sort of thinking again, going back to Whitaker, is the fact that essentially he oversaw or had to write an introduction to Doctor Who three times over. So he did An Unearthly Child, he's done the novelisation of the Daleks, and then he had to do the movie version. And they're all different but the same. Uh, there's, there's all sorts of elements in them, one mm-hmm. slightly more comic, one's very bleak, one's very mysterious, but they all set this this sort of the the mission statement, don't they? Uh, this mysterious man that takes you off on his wild adventures. Yeah, uh, yeah, fantastic. So bear in mind, probably a lot of us have got at least one edition of. Doctor and the Daleks, uh, if if not more, if you you know bought uh, subsequent editions with the so like we say with the Neil Gaiman introduction or the uh, beautiful hardback re-releases that came out in 2016. Uh, one of our regular guests, Keith, was asking, "Is it worth buying this new version?" I couldn't help myself but buy it. I I have a Target edition, a paperback, and I have the hardback re-release. <laughs> I love the story enough that I, uh, it, it, it didn't even cross my mind that I was buying it for a third time. I, I, I really wanted it and I really yeah. enjoyed rereading it and the illustrations are an extra, are really, they're a nice bonus. Um, it's a great edition. I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I'm just saying, I, I got it for Christmas, so 
I don't know whether I would have bought it. It's hard to say. Um, I, I might have thought twice because it 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 is quite a hefty price tag as well, isn't it? Yeah. But I do think it, it is even nicer than I was expecting it to be. I think the the number of illustrations in it and the quality of illustrations are, are absolutely fantastic. Um, so it is it is an absolutely beautiful thing to have. So it's, it's not like an essential purchase. It's just a really really nice thing to have, isn't it? It's uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like yeah, like you say, very nice thing to have. I I was really impressed yeah. with it, um, and I quite like the fact that in Doctor Who magazine they said there might be scope for at least another two in this range, and that's yeah, then got me thinking what potential stories would they be would it be obvious examples or slightly more out there stories that might deserve a, a revisit or or perhaps the illustrations would really sell and um, who knows we might find out soon enough yeah i'd, I'd be very interested to see which ones they do because I, I immediately thought of the doomsday machine because that's another one where like this one, it's a completely different companion introduction, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. um, it's it's written as Joe's introduction to the Doctor, because they hadn't novelised Terror of the Autons yet. Mm-hmm. So it's it's got that which is which is different to the TV story, and you've got the nice bit with the Time Lords as well, who've discovered the theft of the the files about the Doomsday Machine. So if that would uh, that would lend itself a little bit, and then uh, you know you you could make all the aliens and everything a bit more, a bit more impressive as well in the uh, in the illustrations. So the Doomsday Machine would be uh, would be one that I would vote for. That would be uh, that would be a really good one actually, because I I always like revisiting Malcolm Hulk's work. He's another absolutely one yeah. of the, into the Target books. He's one of the one of the best writers that contributed. Um, and the doom, the yeah, just yeah, that's such a good one, a real classic. So I'd be interested to see that. Um, interestingly, when I mentioned about my challenging myself to read all these books for the 60th anniversary and commented on the Doctor Who Illustrated of our Daleks, um, one of my friends went, "Wouldn't it be really interesting if they got somebody to do the illustrations for something like the Zarbi, who didn't know the story, somebody who hadn't seen the yeah. Ultra?" and the venom grubs and could come at it with no preconceived notion and just illustrate something like that or even something like the doomsday weapon that would be you know to see the aliens on that planet um that would be you know it'd be really interesting to see what somebody else would bring to it whereas i think in this edition they've tried to be quite faithful to the imagery of the series mm-hmm. with little tweaks here or there so some of the thals you know they've got the they've got their tabards and their holy leather legs, um, but they've also got yeah. long luscious locks. Um, so there's little tweaks here and there. Um, but it's one of those things when you're a fan, you end up fantasizing. There's all sorts of books and options that I would like to see. There's, I'm sure there's lot. I'm sure lots of people would have other suggestions as well. Yeah, yeah. Because like you say, like the TARDIS interior is. It must. Be, it is obvious that um, that that Robert Hack has. Has seen the TARDIS interior, although it, it's more spacious because it's described in the text as being the size of a medium-sized restaurant, which I really like. <laughs> I really like that as a scale. <laughs> as a scale that we would measure things by. Yeah. Um, so that was really cool. But yeah, that that would be a great idea, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. it? It made me think when you said that about is it the Japanese editions of the Target books where you've got those uh, those really different looking dialects and things. Ah, and some of those, they're so far out, some of the imagery. I mean, the 
the cover, every time I see it, the one for, I think it's Spearhead from Space. Yeah, with, with the Auton. creepy girl, um, Auton, yeah. Missing her hand. and Oh, it's, it's really mm. quite creepy and terrifying, that one. I, so I, I basically, and I now want every edition of every Target Illustrated. <laughs> 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 see what somebody will bring to them. It's going to be very... Uh, uh, it's going to take up a lot of space if they if we get them all in this format. I think it's an extra bookcase at this rate. <laughs> uh, so that's that's Doctor and the Daleks, the illustrated edition. Thank you very much for joining me to discuss this one. Uh, if you'd like to let our listeners know where else they can find you online, um, you can find me on Twitter. It's Mark underscore Doddick. Doddick is spelled D-O-D-Y-K. Um, or you can find me on Instagram as well, and it's just Mark Doddick. That's great. I'll, I'll put a link in that to the show notes as well. Uh, thank you very much again to Dave Rennie. Uh, so I'll put a link in the show notes to, to his podcast. And um, if you are interested in the target novelizations, you should definitely check out Doctor Who Literature, um, which my podcasting colleague Jason uh, puts out as a weekly podcast, which is going through every target book in publication order. And that's always a, a fascinating listen. Thank you very much for listening. Join us next time when we'll be looking at something else from the world of Doctor Who. Thank you. Goodbye now. Bye. Bye.